thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, and thank you all for attending this talk in person and online. Uh, I am very excited and honored to be here today. Um, and of course, as you can see from the title um, and the reason why you're here is that for the next half hour or so, um, I will be speaking to you about autonomous weapons and severe responsibility. Um, this presentation is based on an article that I am finalizing. Um, and I will try to explain things as clearly as possible for an audience that has not read the article. Um, which is also why I prepared this short PowerPoint with some keywords that hopefully will help you follow along uh, my reasoning, which perhaps at times can be a bit complex. But I welcome all comments and, and questions and clarifications uh, at the end. Uh, I should also add as a disclaimer that I'm recovering from a cold, so I do not sound great. So if at some point my voice drops, please let me know. Um, so before getting uh, to my main argument, um, perhaps I give you a bit of, of background um, about how I got to this topic in the first place. Um, like many lawyers, uh, I am not particularly familiar with the tech aspects uh, of uh, autonomous weapons. Um, but what I do find interesting um, about the advent of these new technologies is that they prompt us as international lawyers um, to dissect some old rules um, that we took for granted in a way. And they make us question uh, different elements and uh, they make us question how these old rules could uh, potentially um, apply in light of these new challenges. For instance, if you take um, international humanitarian law, uh, IHL, um, the advent of autonomous weapons is making us question whether in order to comply with the principle of distinction and the other rules on the conduct of hostilities, targeting decisions need to be made by a human or instead can be delegated to an artificial um, intelligence. And in the realm of international criminal law, I think the doctrine of superior responsibility um, offers also the uh, opportunity um, to think about some elements of this doctrine that we didn't necessarily have um, the chance to, to question uh, before. Um, superior responsibility is, uh, as you uh, are probably all aware, uh, a criminal law uh, doctrine. Uh, that entails the responsibility by omission um, of a military commander or um, a civilian superior that failed to prevent or repress the crimes of their subordinates. We find it in the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions, we find it in the statutes of the International Criminal Court, of the Adult Tribunals of Hybrid Court, and so forth. Um, and superior responsibility is a bit unique in international criminal law. Um, and because of this, it has attracted uh, some criticism um, because it is a form of sui generis liability. Um, it has been described as a fallback option. So when everything else fails, when charges wouldn't stick uh, under any other mode of liability uh, towards uh, people in leadership position, uh, then we go for superior responsibility. And in this sense, superior responsibility accords with our um, moral preferences, that those that are in a leadership position 
that could have done something to prevent or punish uh, the crimes of their subordinates and didn't do so be held to account. But on the other hand, the criticism is that there is a gap between the culpability of the superior who simply omitted to act and the actual responsibility, which is for the crimes, including war crimes of their subordinates. Now, in all of this, enter um, autonomous weapons. Um, you might know that um, different stakeholders have been engaged in a series of debates about autonomous weapons, uh, what characteristics should they have, uh, how to regulate them, how can they be used in compliance with international humanitarian law. Uh, from the perspective of criminal law, um, the debates are focused on the difficulty or even impossibility to ascribe criminal responsibility to an individual when autonomous weapons uh, are employed. And this is called the so-called responsibility gap that is created by the use of autonomous weapons. Um, now, various proposals have been put forward as solutions to this problem, um, real or perceived of the responsibility gap. And one of them is superior responsibility. And the way that superior responsibility has been presented <laughs> as a solution to the problem of the responsibility gap um, is um, in one way to um, consider autonomous weapons uh, themselves as subordinates um, whose crimes need to be prevented or repressed, or uh, otherwise to rethink and change the, the doctrine uh, so as to accommodate in a way machine criminality uh, of autonomous weapons. Um, I'm not particularly convinced uh, by either of these solutions, um, and I will tell you um, why in the course of my presentation, which is mostly a response to the first kind of proposals, those that, um, to those that believe that we can interpret severe responsibility um, as uh, entailing the responsibility of superiors for crimes committed by the autonomous weapons, where the autonomous weapons themselves are the subordinates. And I will focus uh, on those that I believe are the challenges or some of the challenges to the applicability of the doctrine in these circumstances. Um, and I will first explain. Um, how the type of control that humans exercise over autonomous weapons is different from a qualitative perspective from the type of control that is needed for a superior subordinate relationship to exist, which is needed for doctrine of superior responsibility to, uh, to apply. Um, second, uh, I will argue that um, another challenge is represented by the underlying crime uh, that, needs, that would need to be prevented or punished uh, because it needs to have been committed by a punishable subordinate uh, and needs to be a crime properly committed in all its elements. Um, and finally, uh, I will uh, explain how instead, if we focus on the superior's supervisory duties, we can still find some uh, usefulness uh, in the doctrine of superior responsibility within the debate concerning autonomous weapons. So let's start with the first element, the superior subordinate relationship. Um, this is the main challenge, I think, 
to the applicability of the doctrine. And I will come back to this um, a few times. <clears throat> Um, if we look at the codification of the doctrine for various purposes, um, for instance, in the first edition of Protocol and in the various, various statutes, we see that the uh, people that the doctrine refers to, the superiors and the subordinates, are identified in various ways. There are the subordinate forces, the subordinates. Uh, people um, or, or persons, um, there are members of the armed forces under the superior's command, um, or otherwise persons under the effective command and control of a superior, and so forth. Um, based on um, this wording, we never really had a doubt that all of these words identify clearly individuals, and therefore that the superior-subordinate relationship would be an interpersonal relationship between individuals. Um, and I think that um, this interpretation still stands and is, um, um, uh, in a way, is underlined by going back to the origins of the doctrine of superior responsibility. Because today we know that the doctrine applies both to military superiors or commanders and non-military uh, superiors. But the, the origins of this doctrine are in the military sphere. Uh, the doctrine of superior responsibility is the criminal law corollary of the principle of responsible command. And responsible command uh, means that commanders must foster a command culture that is in line with IHL must train their troops, must discipline them, must threaten them sometimes with punishment, so as to make sure that they will use force only in ways that are lawfully permissible in line with international humanitarian law. Um, responsible command also implies a certain level of organization uh, and the imposition of discipline. Um, Responsible command and responsible command structures also imply that, of course, authority can be delegated, um, legal obligations can be delegated, but they can only be delegated to another responsible moral agent. Uh, and in case obligations are not complied with, someone will be responsible. And um, obligations will be still overseen by someone, and so we have the, the responsibility of the superior as a consequence. Um, I think there is really no question about the fact that autonomous weapons are not responsible moral agents. So we should not be delegating them um, any uh, obligations um, under the law. We cannot threaten them with punishment. Of course, they can be programmed in compliance with IHL and should be programmed to be used in compliance with IHL. But I don't think that this is the same thing as educating troops and fostering uh, respect for a command culture that is based on the principle of responsible command. Uh, because simply autonomous weapons do not understand the legal character of prohibitions. It is also uh, important to um, know that um, in order for uh, a superior subordinate relationship to exist, uh, we need 
what is called effective control of the superiors over the subordinates. We know this from um, the case law of international criminal courts and tribunals. Of course, uh, you know that the term effective control in international law means many different things. In the context of superior responsibility, it means something very specific. It means the um, material ability of the superior to prevent or repress the commission of the crimes or to submit the matter to the competent authorities. Um, and uh, the case law of international criminal courts and tribunals has come up with a list of indicative factors that might show the existence of effective control. And you can see them on the PowerPoint, for instance, they include uh, the power to issue orders to engage in hostilities, um, the commander's capacity to um, ensure compliance with orders, to resubordinate units, to remove, replace, discipline, start investigations, and so forth. Now, according to some authors, these indicia can be translated to um, the type of relationship that a commander would have with an autonomous weapon. Um, I think instead that these uh, indicative factors are quite clearly anthropocentric in nature. Of course, they were uh, in the first place developed having in mind the relationship between individuals. But I think that, for instance, adjusting um, an algorithm that guides an autonomous weapon or deciding it to withdraw it um, from one place and, and deploy it elsewhere um, are not indicia of effective control. It is not the same as redeploying troops. It is not the same as issuing orders to troops to act in compliance with IHL. These decisions are decisions are similar to decisions made about any other uh, type of weapon in the arsenal. And yet, it is only in relation to autonomous weapons that it is suggested that these decisions um, instead show that the, the weapons themselves are, are subordinates um, for the purposes of superior responsibility and that someone has effective control over them as it has over their subordinate troops. Um, and I think this is a fundamental misconception of um, the nature of effective control, um, as opposed to the relationship between humans and any type of weapon, including autonomous weapons. Uh, in the law as it stands today, um, we autonomous weapons are means of warfare. They're not combatants. They're not somewhere between combatants and means of warfare. They are weapons, they're tools. They are objects of the law and they're not subjects of the law. So they're not addressed by um, legal obligations or prohibitions. Um, and um, the type of control that is exercised over these weapons is not different from the type of control exercised over any other weapon. Um, here, I refer to you to the work of Tim, Tim McFarland who is a lawyer who also understands and knows about the tech side of autonomous weapons. So as someone who has a certain authority, I'd like me to speak about these things. And I think he has convincingly demonstrated that um, autonomous weapons do not differ in any legally relevant way um, on the basis of their physical properties or functional aspects from other types of weapons. 
and that the type of control that is exercised over how autonomous weapons are operated uh, and how they their use is planned or executed uh, is the same as any other uh, weapon. For instance, um, in military operations, decisions will be made about what type of weapon uh, to use, what type of explosive to employ for a certain attack, uh, about the range of the weapon, uh, the blast radius, and so forth. Uh, and in a way, these are not uh, um, decisions are dissimilar from deciding what level of autonomy uh, to use uh, in a certain operation when autonomous weapons um, are employed. Uh, in the realm of autonomous weapons, uh, specifically, uh, we speak about autonomy uh, in the sense of, that a weapon can be a human supervised uh, or fully autonomous or semi-autonomous. And autonomy is basically a function of human control over the weapon. Uh, but it is still a function of control that is a technical type of control over a tool. It is not the type of control that a commander has over um, their troops. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, we also speak about, for instance, meaningful human control um, or sufficient levels of human control. There are uh, states are still trying to decide what, what exactly they mean by this. But all of these notions are employed to mean the level of human control that is needed so that these weapons remain sort of like tools that do what humans want them to do. And so it is on the basis of all of these, um, these arguments and this research that I end up concluding that a weapon is not a subordinate uh, for the purposes of superior responsibility. I do think that the doctrine remains applicable with respect to um, human subordinates that operate or supervise the weapon and their superiors. Um, but still, um, then the responsibility of the human operator needs to be established in order for the derivative responsibility of their superior to also be established. And this brings me to my second point, which is about the underlying crime. Um, and I think in relation to the underlying crime that needs to be prevented or repressed by the superior, there are uh, two issues that uh, arise. The first is that um, the subordinate needs to be susceptible of punishment. And the second is that the crime needs to have been committed in all its elements. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, autonomous weapons are not considered to enjoy uh, legal personality. They're not addressed by primary rules of international humanitarian law. They cannot be punished based on criminal law. It is true that in some jurisdictions, we have entities that are not individuals um, that have been granted legal personality, uh, for instance, corporations uh, in some states. Uh, but if we take, for instance, the doctrine of respondent superior uh, in the United States, uh, according to which um, a corporation itself can be punished under criminal law uh, for the acts that its agents uh, have undertook, uh, undertaken um, on behalf of the corporation. I think this, is, this presents basically the opposite problem that we have with autonomous weapons. 
because in the case of corporations, the responsibility of the corporation still descends from the actions of a natural person, the agent. But in the case of autonomous weapons, still we have to instead ascribe responsibility to an individual for the acts of an autonomous weapon, uh, including on the basis of superior responsibility. We should also keep in mind that instead in many other jurisdictions, for instance, in Germany, criminal law is instead rooted on the principle of blameworthiness. And this means that an actor must be able to decide between doing right and doing wrong and can only be punished if it is blameworthy having decided to do something wrong. And this principle uh, excludes the criminal responsibility of uh, legal entities and would also exclude the responsibility of machines, no matter how intelligent as they may be, because they will never uh, be able to be blameworthy in this sense. The principle of blameworthiness would also affect, however, the possibility to hold uh, a human operator of an autonomous weapon responsible if either it was not possible for them to stop um, the weapon, for instance, because they were out of the loop, um, or if they do not understand uh, how the technology um, decides to, uh, to, to act because it's important, for instance, machine learning or deep learning whose workings are inexplicable to the operator. In these circumstances, the operator would not be blameworthy for what the uh, weapon has done. And as a consequence, if we held that operator's superior responsible, we would be exacerbating even further the gap between the culpability of the superior and it, their responsibility, which I mentioned at the beginning. Consider also that um, severe responsibility arises for failure to repress, which includes punishment and submitting the, the crime to the competent uh, authorities. And because punishment is um, sort of the most visceral quality of legal personality and autonomous weapons cannot be punished because their punishment uh, could be, for instance, reprogramming or deactivating, and this wouldn't pursue any of the of the goals that we normally associate with punishment in criminal law. Then um, uh, it would mean that the superior cannot simply um, exercise this duty. It cannot punish the weapons. It cannot exercise this power of weapons. It can also not submit the, ma the matter. And authorities because the weapon cannot be and so forth. And this means that if the material ability of the superior to punish is not there, there is also no effective control in the sense of superior responsibility, which brings me back to the initial point that a weapon is not a subordinate. Relatedly, um, when we think about the underlying crime for which the superior's responsibility would arise, uh, we should ask ourselves whether this has to be a crime committed in all its elements. So the objective element of act four, actus reus, 
the mental or subjective element or mansura and the contextual element if needed. And generally, the answer to this question is yes, we do need all of the elements of a crime to be committed. Otherwise, it's not a crime. Not every wrongful act is a crime after all. According to some, instead, when it comes to autonomous weapons, it would be sufficient for only the actus reus to be committed without the required mens rea. So for instance, taking uh, take the war crime of attacking civilians, it's intentionally attacking civilians. If an autonomous weapon does it, so this argument goes, it is sufficient that civilians have been attacked. It's not sufficient. It's not necessary to prove that the machine did so with intent. Um, I don't think that there is uh, any reason to um, change the interpretation of what we mean by commission when it comes to autonomous weapons. Uh, the commission of a crime, I think, implies that it needs to have been uh, committed properly in all its elements. Um, the only partial exception is represented when um, the subordinate can avail itself of an excuse but in the interest of times, and because it, uh, it's even more complex than what, what I've been saying so far, I will uh, leave this out. Um, under criminal law, as it stands today, however, I think that it's pretty clear that autonomous weapons cannot form uh, the required mens rea for a crime. They cannot act with intent. Um, because again, the mens rea is linked to the notions of blameworthiness and culpability, and I think that these are inherent to human notions. Um, and if autonomous weapons are um, then uh, unable to form the mens rea, maybe the correct analogy is with dangerous animals. But then if you uh, look at uh, countries that do have uh, laws on dangerous animals, for instance, the UK, the responsibility of the owner of dangerous animals is a form of strict liability. It is not a form of severe responsibility. Um, the fact also that an underlying crime must have been committed uh, in all its elements, of, of course, affects the possibility of the, uh, for the operator to uh, be held responsible as well. Um, because they might also not have formed the required uh, mens rea. Uh, and as a consequence, this person's superior would not be responsible for uh, the wrongdoings of the weapon. Now, so far, I've told you about all the reasons why I think that superior responsibility is not the way to go. I still think that it can be useful uh, in the discussions concerning uh, autonomous weapons, uh, if we think about the supervisory duties of the superior. So if you think about those obligations that stem from the duty to prevent. Uh, again, from the case law of um, international criminal courts and tribunals, uh, we have some examples of measures that can be taken to prevent uh, the crimes of the subordinates. Um, and I think that at least some of these uh, measures can be interpreted, again, of course, with respect to human subordinates, so as to keep weapons within uh, human control and a human chain of command and control. For instance, if you take um, uh, the obligation to give adequate training in IHL to the subordinates, 
I think, of course, this means making sure that the subordinates, um, again, I'm talking about humans, are aware of the rules of international humanitarian law. But it also means making sure that they're trained in how to use the means and methods of warfare at their disposal in compliance with IHL. And if these means of warfare include autonomous weapons, it means that they need to understand how the system works. They need to understand how to operate it and supervise it. They need to understand when it is malfunctioning and what to do when it is malfunctioning. And in turn, the commander must be able to uh, understand sufficiently how this technology works um, so that it can be um, employed in accordance with IHL. And if, if anything goes wrong, they should be preventing the use of the weapon. Um, take also the issuing orders aimed at bringing the relevant practice in accord with international humanitarian law. Uh, this can be done in different ways when it comes to autonomous weapons, for instance, uh, commanders can coordinate their subordinates to use a specific level of automation for a certain attack. Uh, they can circumscribe the uh, geographical or temporal use of the weapon so that it is used in compliance with IHL. Superiors also have a duty to prevent further or recurrent crimes, and in this sense, securing reports um, of, about the use of the weapons in past attacks is uh, important. Because the first time that a weapon malfunctions, this might not be uh, a war crime. But then at that point, the operator is on notice and their commander is on notice as well that something is potentially going wrong. And at that point, the commander might even have to order that the weapon not be used until it can be reprogrammed or adjusted. Now, uh, to conclude, I understand the appeal um, of superior responsibility as a solution to the responsibility gap. Um, but I do not think that in its current formulation, um, the doctrine allows us to do so. I told you why. Of course, the doctrine could change as a matter of treaty or customary law. Um, I don't see this happening, but even if it did, I think we would run the risk of turning superior responsibility in a form of strict liability or criminal negligence, um, so that anyone who is in putative control of the weapon would be responsible as a superior for whatever malfunctioning happens. And I don't really think that this is a development that we should wish for. So um, instead of closing the responsibility gap, I think this would uh, create further problems to uh, the culpability of, of the superior. And I think that instead of uh, creative interpretations of criminal law, we should focus on uh, supervisory duties and on making sure that the weapons remain under adequate control of humans, uh, <laughs> under a human chain of command and control, so that one person is responsible and that person superior can also be uh, responsible. So at the end of the day, the responsibility <laughs> is closed when uh, we fix the technical specifications of the weapon. We agree on the sufficient level of human control and not uh, by interpreting criminal law in a different way. Thank you so much for your attention.